3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Morning everyone, welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. I'm Evie and I'm joined by Jen, Fung and Kanagi. And we're here today um, at the start of Refugee Week in Victoria. Hi everyone. Hello, how are you Evie? Um, I'm freezing cold, um, but it's finally the winter solstice, so it's, hopefully it's going to start warming up um, finally. Um, it's been a lovely few days, though, and I'm on a bit of a break from work, so I'm just enjoying relaxing at the moment. That's so nice. <laughs> Yesterday was so beautiful. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I had a nice um, walk outside and um, was just enjoying Merry Creek and everything, so it's nice to do that when it's not just pouring down with rain. Yeah, definitely. I love the crisp days. Yeah, yeah. They're so nice. Um, did anyone do anything nice on the weekend? I think I just did nothing and really enjoyed that. <laughs> I just sat on my couch um, taking a break from work and just was like, okay, just need to not do any work at all, not mm-hmm. look at screens or anything like that, and that was very pleasant. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing that my mom was saying, she actually experienced some of the um, power shortages when uh, Victoria got hit by those like storms. And she was saying that because there was no electricity and like no screens and stuff like that, they went to bed like so early every night. And they said <laughs> that just like the impact of like having no artificial light mm. or anything like yeah. really made you just like exhausted because that stuff obviously keeps you up all the time. Yeah. Um, like me looking at my phone at 11 yeah. o'clock at night last well, night saying go to sleep. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder how much we'd sleep. We just didn't have <laughs> phones or laptops, any blue light. Yeah. You can get, like, my brother has them. They, they look really funny. Oh, the you blue light glasses. <laughs> <laughs> the glasses. <laughs> They're, like, these orange, they look, like, oh. orange tinted, and they take out the blue light oh, in yeah. the screens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're I'm already blind enough. I just, like, I can add another lens. <laughs> Everything's just blurry anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um... All right, coming up on the show, we've actually got a jam-packed show, Very a lot going on uh, this morning, which is really exciting. Um, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Cami Webb-Gannon, who is a lecturer with the School of Health and Society at the University of Wollongong and is also the coordinator of the West Papua Project. Uh, she has just written a new book that we, we discuss in the interview and also just the recent um, escalation and threat of violence in West Papua. And she also gives a really good historical background into why this is happening, uh, you know, why there's been no proper intervention. So, yeah, it was a really interesting discussion. That's really fantastic. Um, I'm going to be speaking to Ian Rintoul of Refugee Ac- uh, Action Collective in Sydney. Um, 
Yesterday, it was announced that um, quite a few asylum seekers um, who were brought to Australia under the Medivac laws, which have now been repealed, have decided to go on hunger strike uh, to draw attention to their situation in Melbourne detention. Um, They're still being held despite quite a few of Medivac refugees being released into the community earlier this year. They've been given no reason for why they are still in detention, and so they wish to talk about and get the general public to understand their current situation. So Ian will be speaking to us about that. Great. And in keeping with the theme of Refugee Week, um, I'll be speaking with my friend Donna, who is a lawyer and an activist in Melbourne, and she came to Australia as a refugee from Kurdistan many years ago, um, and she'll be talking to us about her experience with that. Awesome. All right, we'll be right back with the news headlines right after this. New International Bookshop's Big Red Book Fair is back and longer than ever. The sale starts 9am 21st of June and ends 7pm 25th of June. Flat rate of $3 books of all genres in the back room. Sale also includes $1 secondhand zines, journals, textbooks, penguin books and 10% off all new books. Get your radical literature cheap all this week. Visit nibs.org.au for details. A 3CR supporter. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. All right, so talking about some news headlines today, um, as you might be aware, Scott Morrison is currently in Europe for the G7 summit. Uh, however, he's uh, had to defend some what he calls innocent personal visits to find out his ancestry in Cornwall while he's over there. Um, it's a uh, I feel like it's quite galling. Like, you know, Scott Morrison seems to go away on holiday um, during particularly yeah, really, <laughs> critical he, times he in Australia. He times well, doesn't he? Yeah, and especially at the point where Australians cannot easily or at all go overseas or come back from overseas, it seems particularly hard that uh, Mr Morrison would be going over to find out a bit of Ancestry.com while he's there. Um <sighs> It's, yeah, uh, I can't see my grandma for at least another two years in America, so I'm feeling pretty bad about, you know, seeing the Prime Minister take some, you know, trips away from his actual job. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and my favourite part of this story is the fact that Scott, um, Australia is not a member of the G7. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. Why are we there? Scott Morrison has simply just decided that it was still imperative for him to attend. Yeah. I do have to say, seeing that photo of Scott Morrison, Boris Johnson, and Biden yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just all in that room, 
Um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, I also wanted to mention in regards to that, the uh, finance minister, Simon Birmingham, uh, has also defended Scott Morrison's trip to Cornwall, saying it was an act of soft diplomacy. I mean, soft <laughs> diplomacy happens all the time, but soft diplomacy at a time when no Australians can travel to or from mm-hmm. Australia, mm-hmm. including citizens that are stuck overseas. I'm not sure who this soft diplomacy is for. No, I have no idea of personal pursuits and soft diplomacy, I mean. And, yes, not exactly surprising, but uh, the PM is also one of 10 G7 attendees who has been approved for home quarantine, um, which is a great example of who gets to do what they want in terms of, you know, being allowed to quarantine themselves and who has to stay in hotels and what have you. Definitely, yeah. Um, and even the fact that, like, this is a meeting that I know could have happened online, um, could have happened via Zoom. <laughs> but well, ex- he seems to be attending meetings via Zoom from quarantine, which are arguably probably more important for him to be at. Yeah. Um, like, you know, the one about the vaccine rollout. Mm-hmm. Maybe he could have prioritised that one. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously we're all aware that he doesn't seem to be prioritising vaccine rollout, generally speaking, and he he doesn't seem to... It doesn't really seem to almost matter when he's not in the country because nothing... He doesn't prioritise the things that he's supposed to when he's in the country anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, th- there was another thing this week that made me laugh um, in a really sort of... Just it's emblematic of the Australian vaccine rollout. Um uh, the Guardian put out um, an article saying that they tried to claim um, back copies of um, the federal government's vaccine rollout plan for aged care. Um, and the federal government put out a version 7 on their website. So the Guardian um, put in a freedom of information request to ask for all the other versions, and they simply weren't there. <laughs> so it's like you're putting in an assignment saying this is version 7 and you just did it the night before. <laughs> I feel like 7, oh, yeah, like 7 is a believable number. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it they, doesn't they seem fake. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like there's a lot happening in the government um, this past week, uh, more notably Barnaby Joyce, mm. new leader of the Nationals, He's back. He's back. He's back. Barnaby's back. Um, um, it was three years ago that he left. I like it. It feels so white. recent. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A lot happens in three years. It turns out. Um, yes, Barnaby Joyce is now the new deputy prime mm. minister and is the head of the Nationals now. So um, that's happened while Scott Morrison was overseas. Yeah, um, and you know, I'm sure we all remember that he resigned. Um, as leader and deputy prime minister in 2018, um, you know, uh, you know, surrounded by sexual harassment accusations, um, you know, claims that he's denied, but still this is an ongoing conversation of men in power who, Mm. um, you know, get to retain that power. Yeah. Um, with no consequences. With no consequences. Yeah. It kind of really tells you that argument of um, accusations ruin men's lives is pretty false. Yeah. Mm. They literally can just step back into power. Yeah. Step back in, keep their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a really good article on The Guardian regarding the Barnaby Joyce 
um, heading up the nationals again. Uh, it was a reaction from rural women of the Australian women in agriculture. Um, one of the founding members said, Joyce trapped in culture dominated by power plays between the boys. Um, <laughs> the boys. The <laughs> boys. Um, uh, she's a prominent rural woman uh, and has blasted the Nationals for reinstating Barnaby Joyce to the leadership, saying the return of the ousted MP shows the party is not listening to regional women. Joyce, who successfully toppled Michael McCormack in a leadership spill on Monday, subsequently claimed he was, and this is a quote, a better person, following three years on the backbench, yeah, as we were saying before. So, I mean, he's not kind of been welcomed with open arms. It's hard to imagine how um, the backbench and the, like just the cabinet is going to look like now, just with con- like this kind of juggling, especially with Scott Morrison coming back and mm. with the kind of um, public sort of rebuke of how the vaccine rollout and just the handling of coronavirus in general has happened. It's like, you know, coming up to a federal election next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a lot um, at play and it will be interesting to see how the Labour Party actually makes use of this situation. Yeah. And it's, I mean, as we kind of touched on briefly before the spill came, kind of came out after, you know, the frenzied weekend of negotiations, um, within the party and the growing concern of, um, Scott Morrison's, uh, I guess language at the climate change, um, summit, uh, which was last weekend, um, when Scott Morrison spoke about a net zero economy. Um, and there's been a lot of articles written about uh, Barnaby Joyce's um, approach to climate change and uh, the Nationals MPs warn against cutting greenhouse gases to net zero emissions by 2050. Um, yeah. It's still yeah. kicking the can down the road. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it is a... It's, it should be a vital part of the next federal election to actually hold them to account in terms of greenhouse policies, and the nationals now being rejigged will definitely um, impact on that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I think that's it in terms of news headlines. We'll go to a quick announcement, and we'll be back with a track. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, Retracing Melbourne's Queer Footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. This next song is called Poison by Dark Water, and it's very sort of 80s, dark wave, synth pop, um, just to get you dancing this Tuesday morning. Yeah. 
So that was Poison by Dark Water. Um, if you like their music, uh, they are supporting June Jones at the Old Bar on July 1st, so grab some tickets to that. You might remember last week we had our Radiothon episode. We want to thank you again so much for your generous donations. We have a long, long list of people who have been incredibly generous, uh, some of whom I recognise your names. Um, Samantha Floriani, who was on just last week, very generous donation. Ben Harris-Roxas, Tom Lang, Isaac Williams, and um, our wonderful producer, Gab Reed, as well. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> and I also wanted to say thank you to my favourite friends in the whole world, Dacia <laughs> and Kate. Um, thank you so much for your extremely generous donation and, of course, to the past um, presenters of Tuesday Breakfast as well. Thank you again. Um, look, we're doing really well with donations. You should still give generously to 3CR, though. You can go to 3cr.org.au. Um, the donation link will be on the main website. Um, just a reminder that $200 allows us to podcast your favourite show so you can listen back anytime. So if you want to make 3CR more accessible, please donate. Yeah, definitely. There's still so much time to donate. Um, all right, we're going to cross to... Um an incredible conversation I had with Dr. Cami Webb-Gannon, um, who is a lecturer. Um, she's also a coordinator of the West Papua Project. Um, she talks a little bit about exactly what's been happening in West Papua in recent weeks and gives some, uh, well, a really good historical um, overview in terms of uh, West Papua and especially West Papua's relationship with Indonesia. Um, so please enjoy this one. So joining us on the show today is Dr. Kami Webb-Gannon, who is a lecturer with the School of Health and Society at the University of Wollongong. She has an early career as a researcher and decolonization ethnographer, focusing specifically on the Pacific Islands region. Kami is also the coordinator of the West Papua Project at the University of Wollongong. She's on the show today to talk to us about West Papua and exactly what's been happening there in the recent weeks. Thank you so much for joining us, Kami. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So in the recent weeks, there has been a bit of fears yet again uh, about another violent crackdown in West Papua. But just before we get into that, I kind of wanted to roll it back for our listeners in terms of uh, a bit of the hi historical context. So um, geographically, I guess, where is West Papua and who are the Indigenous people of West Papua? Okay, sure. Um, so West Papua is the western half of the island of New Guinea. Most people will have heard of Papua New Guinea, which is the eastern half of that island, and it's an independent nation state. West Papua um, has was a Dutch colony and then was um, taken over by Indonesia in 1962-1963 through a military occupation. Um, okay, so at that point, West Papuans were being prepared by the Dutch for um, independent nation statehood. Ind Indonesia had already achieved or won its independence from the Dutch in 1945. Um, and when they had worked for um, some time on bringing West Papua with them, they had kind of um, nationalist historical links to West Papua in that Indonesian soldiers who had fought against the Dutch had been um, imprisoned in camps in West Papua. And there were various reasons that um, Indonesia thought that West Papua should go along um, with the Indonesian um, independent nation state. But um, 
the Dutch had prepared West Papuans for their own independent nation state and um, they weren't going to let West Papua go with Indonesia. West Papuans had also decided that they wanted um, to have their own state. And the Dutch had administered um, both the Dutch East Indies, which was to become Indonesia, and West Papua separately. Now, when um, when Indonesia militarily intervened in West Papua um, in 1962, the rest of the world did not intervene because it was the era of the Cold War and Indonesia had threatened to go to Russia for weapons and support if other countries decided to prevent um, Indonesia from taking over West Papua. Other countries, including the United States, Australia and the Dutch, were not prepared to have a um, Cold War um, or uh, sorry, a Russian ally in the region. And so they basically let Indonesia do what they wanted. One thing that did happen, though, was that um, the Indonesian and the United States government developed the New York Agreement. So this agreement did not involve Indigenous West Papuans, but it was agreed that in 1969, an independent referendum would take place that would be supervised by the United Nations. And in that referendum, West Papuans would get to choose whether they wanted to remain with Indonesia um, and become officially annexed or whether they wanted independence. So in 1969, this vote did take place. It was called the Act of Free Choice, but it was an absolute sham. United Nations and other um, foreign observers were in the territory during that vote, and everyone agreed that it was a travesty. Um, less than 1% of the West Papuan population was handpicked by Indonesia and told to vote for integration with Indonesia. Um, if they did not, they would have their tongues cut out. So the vote was obviously for Indonesia. However, it was not representative and it was coerced. Despite this, the United Nations took it um, as an indication that West Papua would become in international law a part of Indonesia. From the early 1960s, mid-1960s, West Papuans had been fighting Indonesia, though. Uh, first through using violence, through guerrilla warfare, but um, over the years it became a diplomatic struggle and um, West Papuans have also pushed for dialogue to talk about their political grievances and um, they've also been calling for another referendum, an independent, um, internationally supervised referendum that is representative of West Papuan wishes. So far, um, Indonesia has not listened to this this plea from West Papuans and keeps trying to push a development perspective. They say, let's let's solve the grievances in West Papua through developing the province because it's a very poor province. Um, so they're pushing this kind of economic solution, which West Papuans are saying is no solution at all. Actually, the heart of the problem is political. Uh, let me just tell you quickly, though, that um, since the in the lead up to the Act of Free Choice, which Papuans call the Act Free of Choice. Um, in 1969, um, up until the present day, West Papuans have been subject to what they consider to be a slow-motion genocide. That is, that their peoples are being um, wiped out, not all at once, as has happened in other um, genocides in the world, but over over the decades. So Indonesia's introduced a policy of transmigration, whereby they encouraged migrants from elsewhere in Indonesia to move to West Papua and um, gave them land. 
this is one of the things that has made West Papuans a minority in their homeland. And um, one of the reasons why West Papuans feel that their culture, their languages, um, their ways of life are endangered. So they also believe that they're subject to cultural genocide in um, for decades, not having been allowed to speak their indigenous languages, not being allowed to practice their culture. They've also been subject to rape, to torture, to um, disappearances, to starvation campaigns. Uh, the, the list goes on. So it's fairly obvious why West Papuans are um, campaigning for independence and continue to do so. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to expand on that point. Um, you mentioned that Indonesia kind of pushes this economic uh, development, like infrastructure. Is that exactly what they want from West Papua or what exactly is their agenda there? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's several reasons why Indonesia wants to hold on to West Papua. So one is, uh, you know, probably uh, not the primary reason, but one of them is pride. Indonesia um, is a very nationalist country and um, it believes that its sovereignty and its territorial integrity is being threatened when West Papuans um, ask for independence and when supporters from other countries, supporters of West Papua advocate for self-determination for West Papuans. They say, oh, no, under international law, West Papua is um, a part of our territory, therefore back off. And then there's other reasons such as West Papua um, has a lot of land compared to the um, overcrowded islands in Indonesia and so um, has been seen as a place and a space for Indonesia to kind of relieve the um, population pressures of its other islands. Probably the main reason is that in West Papua, the largest gold and copper mine called Freeport McMoran is located. It's a um, US-owned company with Indonesian subsidiaries, but um, the US pays huge taxes to the Indonesian government. And so um, the the Indonesian government is not likely to let the the resources of West Papua go. So this is why Indonesia wants West Papua. Why does it push for an economic kind of solution? Well, because it doesn't want to acknowledge um, that the core political grievances at the heart of the matter. West Papuans want to be able to determine their own future. They want to be able to govern themselves, to practice their own cultures, uh, to solve their own problems using methods that they decide upon and to manage their own resources. Indonesia doesn't recognise that there's any such thing as Indigenous peoples in Indonesia and therefore it doesn't recognise Indigenous rights in West Papua. Um, so that's not an avenue that it's chosen to try and um, resolve the problem. What Joko Widodo, the Indonesian president, has tried to do up until now is, is push the development approach. So one of the um, key projects that he's been working on during his presidency is the construction of the Trans-Papua Road to open. So, so he's trying to open up the province to development by, by um, connecting different uh, main cities in Papua um, to each other via this huge road. This is incredibly problematic, according to Indigenous West Papuans, because they don't want their province opened up for more migrants um, and the more military troops to be able to access different Indigenous areas more easily. Um, another problem is that through um, providing, you know, kind of more economic opportunities in the province by opening it up. Um, so he, in, in opening up the territory to economic opportunities, the opportunities are for Indonesian migrants, not Indigenous West Papuans, who have always had the corner of the market in West Papua. 
um, often come from other places or even been brought from other places in Indonesia in order to work on the road in order to um, kind of open up businesses. So the economic opportunities are not for Indigenous West Papuans. Um, sure, the province might be um, developed infrastructurally, but this isn't to the benefit of West Papuans. And um, great concern to West Papuans is the fact that the military is being contracted to build the road in a lot of areas or to provide security for the road. And this means that increasingly Indigenous Papuans are under um, surveillance by the military. This kind of came to a head in December 2018. This is a bit of background. West Papuans celebrate their hoped-for Independence Day on the 1st of December every year. That was the day that um, in 1961 when they actually were preparing for independence under the Dutch and had chosen their morning star flag, a national anthem and various symbols of nation statehood. And so December the 1st is a flag raising day for lots of Papuans. Um, in the highlands um, in West Papua, um, in Nduga, um, Regency, uh, a number of workers, Indonesian workers, were building this Trans-Papua Road. Several of the local independence advocates had written a letter to the um, head of security who was working on the road, to the head of the, the group working on the road um, in that area, and said, please, um, you've got three days, please clear out. We are going to be holding a flag-raising ceremony. It's only for Indigenous Papuans, um, and we don't want anyone watching. Apparently, this letter went to the people working on the road and they just ignored it. In fact, they showed up to take photos of the flag raising, which is a sacred um, political event for West Papuans. The um, guerrilla army in the area claimed that they had evidence that um, the people who had shown up to take photos who were working on the road were spies for the army. And so they killed a great number of them. I've heard an estimate between 19 and 23 people. This basically triggered a, um, a huge military reprisal in which at least 45,000 Indigenous West Papuans have now been made in internally displaced persons or internal refugees in the highlands because of the military crackdown on West Papua as a re as a response to um, the killing of those road workers. So, you know, it's just kind of an escalating and ongoing event um, in the highlands in particular. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR uh, and you're just listening to a discussion I had with Dr. Cami Webb-Gannon about West Papua. She's just outlining some of the uh, historical context um, in terms of the struggle of West Papua, um, some uh, recent history um, in 2018. Uh, but we'll be right back uh, with a track right after this. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a National People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. 
It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Keeping uh, with the theme of Genevieve's interview, the next track is by Black Sisters, Leah, Rosa and Petra Wamaropan, three West Papuan singers with a powerful message, standing strong for a free West Papua. This song is called uh, Biak Meos Karu. Yeah. 
so just that ambient sound playing over the top was a beautiful song uh, by the Black Sisters uh, called Biak Mios Karu. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7.40 a.m. Uh, we're going to launch back into the second half of uh, my conversation with Dr. Cami Webb-Gannon. Um, in this half, uh, we cross to more of the recent threat of violence that um, is happening in West Papua in the last few weeks. Um, here, Cami explains... Uh, what's happened um, and what has been the impact and um, especially the reaction or may I say uh, lack of reaction uh, from the West, rest of the world. Yeah, and this is a good segue into exactly what's happening now to kind of show that, you know, this is uh, continuing. What exactly has happened in recent weeks uh, between the escalation uh, or an escalation between Indonesia and West Papua? Uh, people, could you just explain uh, what happened and what is, why is this, I guess, a concern? So the West Papua Indigenous Army, um, guerrilla army, were the perpetrators of the killing of the road workers back in December 18. Then the Indonesian military, which is more powerful militarily and in terms of um, personnel, um, led the crackdown in the provinces. And ever since then, there's been um, an increase in, in um, violence on both sides. Now, when I say that, it's not proportional. Um, the guerrilla army, the West Papua guerrilla army, the TPMPB, has very few weapons. They rely on bows and arrows and um, guns that have been stolen from the Indonesian military and not a, not a huge number of um, people who have joined the the army, but they do keep on attacking, and um, they've they've upped the ante in recent years. In April, they managed to kill um, a general, the first general Indonesian general who has ever been killed in the province, and he was head of intelligence um, in Papua, Brigadier General I Gusti Putu Dani Karyanagraha, who is known for short as General Dani. And when he was killed, I mean, this was considered a big victory by the Indonesian, sorry, by the West Papuan um, guerrilla army. They'd never killed someone of this um, kind of political significance before. And it um, triggered fury in Indonesia. And the head of the People's Consultative Assembly in Indonesia, um, Bambang Sosiato, um, declared to the army, forget about human rights. We'll look, we'll think about those later. Destroy the enemy. Destroy the indigenous West Papuan resistance. That's your first aim. So basically he'd kind of unleashed the army on West Papua after that. At the same time, the West, the Indonesian government declared the West Papuan separatists, um, or people who were seeking independence in, in West Papua terrorists. And so this is extremely concerning because what it means is that 
the Indonesian military no longer needs to provide evidence or no longer needs to have a reason, um, a, a solid, um, you know, kind of military or legal reason for um, apprehending Indigenous West Parklands. It can call anyone a terrorist and say that they're involved because of the the powers um, that they now have under terrorism law. They can um, basically um, arrest anyone for terrorism, kill anyone. They already operate with impunity and this just um, exacerbates that in the province. So several weeks ago, Victor Yemo, who is one of the um, leading activists, you know, self-determination independence activists in West Papua, was arrested and charged with treason. And um, observers of the West Papuan conflict are very concerned, and human rights observers are very concerned about his safety and his well-being. Um, that he, they're worried that he might be getting tortured in prison. Not sure that he will actually come out of it alive. And he's a political prisoner. They, they, um, arrested him for, um, his role in organizing the protests across West Papua last year. And all he was doing was exercising his right to, um, you know, um, assembly to political, uh, political expression. So there are, um, a lot of, increasing concerns at the moment but um, the OPM and the TPN so the two kind of resistant main resistance groups in West Papua have said well we see this as a war now basically a declaration of war if the Indonesian government has said um, to the the army you know don't worry about human rights right now just exterminate the enemy which is essentially indigenous West Papuans because most indigenous West Papuans do want independence then you know we will start retaliating Every time the, the army kills someone, we're going to, you know, don't be surprised if we start killing and um, Indonesians as well, including civilians. So, you know, this is just this is just a really scary and desperate situation. Yeah. And I think that quote, destroy them first. We will discuss human rights matters later that you just said then is just harrowing, like um, extremely alarming just in terms of the reaction, if any from the rest of the world. Uh, has there been a reaction from the world? And I guess leading on from that, why hasn't there been uh, proper intervention into what has been labelled a slow genocide? Mm. I haven't really seen a, um, what you might expect um, as, you know, kind of a proportionate or reasonable reaction from any other government to a statement which to, um, from a so-called democratic government that says to worry about human rights later. So, no, that's um, that too is surprising and alarming and shows the reluctance of regional governments to get involved in the conflict and to um, kind of rock the boat in terms of bilateral government relations and diplomatic relations with Indonesia. Why has the rest of the world not intervened in this nearly six-decade um, conflict. My first reason, um, my, my first, you know, kind of response to that is primarily I think this is a problem of racism. And the um, it, from the early colonial days, European ideas of um, of race and hierarchy put black people at the bottom. <clears throat> now, when ex- when People, you know, came, um, explorers came to the Pacific and colonists um, came to the Pacific. They, th- there was, they, they, they came up with a hierarchy of peoples in the region. And so 
they divided the Pacific region into three subregions. Polynesia was named for its many islands. Poly means many. Micronesia was named for its small islands, micro, and Melanesia was named for the black skins of its people, Mela, um, means black. And so there's, there's, there's been this history of, of racism, even, you know, during colonial times and that's not even during, but especially during colonial times, but that has been, um, has, you know, kind of continued post Dutch colonization and into Indonesian colonization of West Papua. And, um, I think it, it's also, it, it means that a lot of the world just doesn't particularly care about what happens in Melanesia apart from Melanesians and, um, anthropologists and people who follow the conflict. But I mean, other reasons have to do with real politic. Indonesia and Australia have had a rocky relationship ever since Indonesia led the um, interfer- intervention in East Timor, and so Indonesia is incredibly sensitive to um, any any comments by us from Australia about West Papua. Vanuatu has been a government that has long supported West Papuan independence or the right to self-determination for West Papuans. Increasingly, other Pacific Island nations are following Vanuatu's lead and um, are talking about West Papua at different UN human, you know, over the years at um, human rights forums at the United Nations. The African Caribbean Pacific Group of States is also um, looking into how it can support self-determination for West Papua. And West Papuans themselves are making alliances, not at, you know, the kind of nation state level, but in civil society across the Pacific and with other black and indigenous peoples around the world. So the, the movement is gaining traction. And that is um, one of the topics of my new book, actually. Yes, I was I was going to bring that up just in terms of, you know, you mentioned in the article as well, like the large publicity that Palestine and Myanmar and the Uyghurs in China have received and, you know, how important it is to educate for people to educate themselves on West Papua as well. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about your book. So the book argues, my book is called Morning Star Rising, The Politics of Decolonization in West Papua, and it um, is published by the University of Hawaii Press. It um, is available for pre-order right now from on Amazon and also from the um, press's website, and um, you should be able to receive a copy after the uh, at the beginning of next month. They'll be sent out. Um, so the book talks about the, the history of the independence movement up until the present day, and it argues that contrary to um, kind of received opinion, um, the independence movement in West Papua is not futile and it's not doomed to failure and that it is, in, is gaining increasing traction through um, the efforts um, towards decolonization made by West Papuan people in collaboration with other indigenous and um, Pacific people and black people across the world. So the different strategies that West Papuans have used, I talk about, including guerrilla warfare, um, the push for um, diplomatic recognition, the push for a referendum. There was even hope at one point that they could make some progress through pushing for the, through international um, indigenous rights infrastructure, although that has been fairly limited. But um, with the with the rise of social media, West Papuans have been able to get their stories out in a much more effective way than they have previously. And they've been over the past probably um, 11 or so years forming international networks with lawyers, with politicians and with civil society groups, groups of artists, um, church groups and um, have been able to raise their profile that way. So I talk about the kind of different strategies that competing groups of West Papua, and they're all working towards one goal, which is what they call merdeka or um, 
freedom, self-determination, but they're using different strategies and different ways of doing it. And it's the friction that's caused by these strategies, by this internal kind of conflict that has actually propelled the movement forward. It's made people branch out and think of more um, kind of creative and extreme ways of um, getting their message out there. And um, ultimately, all the people, uh, you know, most Indigenous people are working towards the same goal, but just doing it through different means. And so that's what I look at in the book. Yeah, awesome. I think, yeah, for any listeners that want to find out more or want to educate themselves on West Papua, definitely worth having a look. We'll provide a link on our website. What was the name of the book, just uh, to make sure I've got yes. it right? Morning Star Rising, cool. The Politics of Decolonization in West Papua. All right. Well, I think that'll be a wrap, Cami. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Genevieve. I appreciate um, the opportunity to talk about West Papua. That was Dr. Cami Webb-Gannon, who I uh, had the pleasure of speaking to um, about West Papua, um, the recent events that have happened there and um, uh, the history of West Papua. Um, I also just wanted to reiterate, uh, Cami's book is called Morning Star Rising, The Politics of Decolonization in West Papua. And I also wanted to just uh, mention that 3CR has an incredible um, show called uh, Voice of West Papua, which happens every Tuesday from 6.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. and is presented by West Papuan activists and community members who voice uh, the aspirations of Papua's struggle, share songs, interviews, music and stories. Uh, so we're going to uh, now go to a track. Um, it's by one of my favorite artists at the moment. She's a Malian born, um, artist who, uh, is now living and working in France. Um, this is Aya Nakamura with her song, Plus Jamais. <laughs> Accepter, ça fait mal, mais je tourne la page. Je suis tenté, je dois l'avouer. Je pensais à nous tous les jours. C'est logique, y'a aucun retour. Tout ça c'est relou. Yeah. Parfois, je suis dans l'excès. Ma folie me joue des tours. J'ai même pas pourquoi. Je voulais pas y croire. C'était notre histoire On est devenus si distants et c'est le J'ai donné mon cœur, je le referai plus jamais J'ai trop de rancœur, ça n'arrivera plus jamais J'ai déjà donné, je le referai plus jamais Ouais j'ai déjà donné, ça m'arrivera plus jamais J'ai donné mon cœur, je le referai plus jamais J'ai trop de rancœur, ça n'arrivera plus jamais J'ai déjà donné, je le referai plus jamais Ouais j'ai déjà donné Lately, I've been holding on to things you say. Heartbreaks are darker. Shouldn't have to be this easy. If I give you space, someone's gonna take my place. All because of my mistakes. Girl, I gotta say this. Don't think I can say this. J'ai donné mon cœur, je le referai plus jamais. J'ai trop de rancœur, ça n'arrivera plus jamais. J'ai déjà donné, je le referai plus jamais. Ouais, j'ai déjà donné, ça m'arrivera plus jamais. J'ai donné mon cœur, je le referai plus jamais. J'ai trop de rancœur, 
So again, that was Plus Jamais uh, by Aya Nakamura featuring Stormzy. So early this morning, um, we talked about how it was announced yesterday that 14 asylum seekers brought to Australia under the now repealed Medivac legislation began a hunger strike last week in a bid to draw attention to their ongoing detention. So today we're joined by Ian Rintoul, who is a founding member of the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. It's a community activist organisation campaigning for the rights of refugees in Australia. It's been around since the Howard era. And Ian joins us to speak, us, speak to us about the hunger strike now being held by the DNA detainees in Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation. Thanks so much for joining us, Ian. Yeah, no worries. Morning, Evie. So when did the hunger strike begin and what are the demands of uh, the detainees? Well, uh, it began uh, Thursday night. So they haven't, haven't eaten since uh, Thursday uh, night time. And uh, the demand's very straightforward. They want, they want to be released. Uh, they said they don't really care about the visa and the long-term settlement, but their physical and mental condition has just been deteriorating for the whole period that they've been in detention. The two years in, in detention has just made it worse. Uh, they, they want to be released. Yeah. So, you know, so these asylum seekers have been in detention for two years, and how many Medivac refugees still remain in detention? Uh, it was about about 90. About 192 uh, were brought uh, from uh, during under under, under Medivac legislation while it was in force, uh, and around 100 have been released. Released between December and February this year, and uh, there's uh, you know they, that's one of the reasons they want to, they want to know like why is why is half released and half you know kept inside. Yeah, I remember that um, at the time, uh, you said uh, December to February, uh, Peter Dutton mentioned that it was for cost-saving reasons. Of course, it's uh, much less expensive to have refugees in detention in the community than it is to keep them um, in either hotel detention or in um, the Melbourne detention centres. But, yeah, that doesn't explain why half were released and half still remain uh, essentially in prison and um, still not being adequately cared for. Yeah, that's right. There's been no explanation whatsoever. I mean, the government actually said at the time that it was government policy that the Medivac uh, refugees would actually be progressively released. And Dutton was quite, uh, you know, forthright saying it was costing too much. Well, it's certainly costing too much. It's costing too much in terms of their lives, in terms of their deteriorating, you know, physical and mental health. And, uh, as I said, there was no explanation by, you know, by Dutton or now by Karen Andrews, even though they, you know, 60 people actually wrote to 60 of the Medivac refugees actually wrote to Karen Andrews in May, uh, setting out the same kind of concerns. You know, why is half released? Why are, why are we being, uh, you know, kept inside? Although our circumstances are exactly the same, we're not getting medical treatment. People who are brought here for mental health reasons are seeing their mental health situation actually, you know, get worse while they're held in detention in Australia. Yes, that's right. And um, Border Force themselves have acknowledged that a quote-unquote peaceful protest is happening, but that facility detention service providers are engaging with the detainees and there are no concerns for their health and safety or welfare. That seems at odds with the fact that there is a hunger strike happening and there are many detainees, as you said, who have not had their uh, concerns addressed, who are still trying to get even the most basic adequate care for their conditions that they were brought to Australia in the first place. 
Yeah, that's it's the typical border force and circo gobbledygook, actually. And um, it belies the fact that uh, two, two they called ambulances and two of the hunger strikers were taken to hospital yesterday yesterday morning. They've been returned now, uh, but uh, their, their their blood pressure and blood sugar has been constantly uh, monitored. And there's, there's even a shocking implication, as I so often make, that uh, that they might be sneakily getting food, you know, somehow or other. Um, and uh, that means that it's just it's just a typical statement from Border Force to try and you know play down their responsibility uh, for their deteriorating uh, health and deteriorating situation uh, in you know in detention. So we have a lot of concern. I mean, these guys were not in good physical shape when they started the hunger strike. They have uh, really it's been an absolutely last resort. Uh, for them, you know, that they've, they keep saying, you know, they've done the right thing, they've waited patiently, they've talked to the case managers, they've written to, you know, Karen Andrews, they really feel that the hunger strikers are the only way that they can, you know, push their, their issue under the nose of, uh, border force and hopefully get greater attention in the, you know, the wider community to put pressure on the, on the government to get them, to get them released. They should be in the community. I mean, they should have been in the community in Australia in 2013 when they when they came, but they've rotted on you know, Manus and Nauru, and uh, now they're they're rotting in Australian detention. Yeah, that's right. Um, just to give some colour to our listeners, in 2019 to 2020, the average cost of keeping a single person in immigration detention was $362,000 per year, but by comparison, it cost the government an estimated 4429 per year to support a person on a bridging visa in the community, and that was revealed in estimates. That seems like an absolutely staggering cost to keep these people in a torturous situation for no clear reason. No, that's 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 right. But I, and I think that's been one of the you know conundrums of the whole you know refugee policy really since the you know the, since the coalition you know introduced the very anti-refugee policy for the last twenty years. But uh, you get statements like from Alex Hawke talking about you know the you know the, what was close to two million that the government's actually spent keeping the Tamil family in Christmas Island. Uh, the government considers it to be money you know well spent. And I think it's best understood. Um, you know, as, as the government effectively buying votes, like they they think the tough border protection policies are electorally popular, and they're prepared to spend enormous amounts of money to, to effectively keep themselves in power at the expense of the the, uh, the human rights and the you know the physical health of the people they're they're detaining. Uh, so it doesn't it doesn't make uh, any sense when we know that the amount of money they're spending on holding people in detention, if they'd given that money uh, to the refugees, they would have been able to you know, buy business visas to get into Australia, into the United States or, or, you know, or somewhere else. It doesn't make economic sense. It only makes political sense from the, the government's point of view to shore up their anti-refugee position. Absolutely. Just the kind of money that's involved. They could start a new life entirely in Australia. Um, is there anything that Australians can do to support um, the refugees who are currently on hunger strike? Well, I mean, I think it's like a bit like with the Tamil family as well. I mean, people can, you know, contact their local members, uh, try to get some explanation about, you know, why the government is, you know, continuing to show up this policy. I think we need to hear more from the Labor Party in terms of demanding the release of the Medivac uh, refugees. We've seen some of the Labor Party members you know, outside being involved in protests outside the the uh, hotels in particular in you know in Melbourne we need to see more of that there are more demonstrations coming up outside the outside the hotels i think that the more we're involved in 
as in whatever form of activism, whether it's contacting the minister or more particularly raising the issue at, at work, at school, at university, looking out for the protests to keep, you know, demanding uh, that we need we need the, the Medivac guys out of detention, we need the Tamil family out of community detention, we need to really, you know, shut down the detention centres and the, the hotels that they're using as prisons. Absolutely. Ian, thank you so much for speaking to us. Uh, you can uh, continue to follow uh, the protest on RAC underscore Sydney on Twitter um, and just follow RAC Sydney on all their platforms and refugee action collectives all over the country. Thank you so much, Ian. Okay, thanks, Sydney. Bye. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. So we have on the show this morning with us Donna Sherwani. Hi Donna, thank you for being on the show. Hi Carnegie, thank you for inviting me. Um, Donna is a very close friend of mine and is a refugee to Australia from Kurdistan in Iraq. I just saw on your Instagram, Donna, uh, the post that you put up about walking for three days and three nights um, when you were very, very young. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, it would have been around the Gulf War um, and we were going from northern Iraq to Turkey. So um, we were obviously fleeing the the from the whatever situation was happening around the Gulf War uh, because obviously our family was in danger and just, uh, the, you know, the Kurdish people as a whole. And we were going from Iraq to Turkey to a camp. Um, now, I don't remember where exactly or what the name of the camp was, but it was like on the border. And I was um, three at the time and I had Darin, my sister, and Harry, my brother. So my parents had to help them, like walk them or given piggybacks and stuff. And so I had to, um, you know, I, I'm the eldest, so I had to walk uh, on my own because obviously my parents couldn't carry so many bags as well as 
them and myself. So, you know, somebody had to walk. <laughs> so that was me. But it's, uh, it was a crazy experience. I do remember um, some things about that experience, um, such as um, how muddy it was and um, how arduous the journey was um, at certain points. But my parents always tell me that I was sort of strong to be able to walk from that age um, for three days and three nights without stopping. Um, But, of course, it must have been very painful. You know, historically, we know that the Kurdish people are one of the most persecuted minorities in the world. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about the circumstances at the time that made your family actually leave? Um, Yes, so we... um, the plight of the Kurdish people, <laughs> it, it's it's always a long story because we have become, uh, well, at least my family, uh, were forced to become refugees or displaced um, people as they were um, several times. Um, and, you know, I can't talk about everyone's experience and all the other wars um, because it's a long, long history. Um, it was, uh, I, you know, in my case... Um, it was either the Gulf War or the 1997 Civil War. And then just before we fled Iraq um, in the year 2000, there were talks that Saddam Hussein was going to gas. Um, he was, uh, uh, you know, uh, he had a campaign uh, just like the Anfal campaign, uh, which happened in 1987-88, where he gassed um uh, um, Kurdish villages and killed thousands and thousands, um, uh, you know, instantly. He was going to do the same, uh, they said, or it was announced somehow that he was going to do the same around in the year 2000. And so uh, people got afraid, uh, including my family, which is why we fled and we couldn't risk it. I mean, the thing is, we were not living in Halabja or anything, but, um, it's, you know, being in northern Iraq, you never feel safe. And there's always, um, you are always at risk of, um, there's always a war. And I lived in the uh, city. So, yeah, there was lots of, lots of things going on. It, it, it was, it was never, a, you, you never had a day where you were just like, okay, <laughs> it's a normal day. It's, there's always, yeah. And how yeah. old were you when you left? I was uh, I was twelve when we left. I was in uh, grade seven, year seven. Um, I was going to a girls' college. I was in year seven, and I remember when uh, I was like, I think it was mid-year, and then my dad said we have to leave, and we just literally packed our bags, and uh, it was just like decided in a number of weeks, maybe like in over two weeks, and we just literally had to leave. And I mean, I, I can't even, it, it was too fast. Yeah. <laughs> and then we just left. Yeah, so I was 12, and on the way, like by the time we had arrived in Bali, I'm talking from Iraq through to Iran, Iran to like, I think Malaysia, yeah, Malaysia, Malaysia to Singapore, and then to Indonesia and then from and then from Indonesia we uh, yeah so we went to Surabaya like Java area I think it is and then to Bali from Bali to Australia and then um I became 13 in Bali so like literally the day before we left so <laughs> oh, um yeah That's so when I arrived in Australia I was 13 
Right. And that's, that's a massive journey. Um, was it by boat? Yes, it was by boat. Yeah. yeah. How long did that take? Uh, that took seven days and seven nights. We were about 38 people. Um, we were the only family. I think there was another family with a boy. They had a boy, but my mom was pregnant and I had Darren and Harry, my siblings. And so we were, yeah, we were the three of us and it was a crazy journey <laughs> to say the least. And, and you were so young as well. Um, yes. That would have made such a, an impression on your mind. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I remember the oscillating, the boat, it was so flimsy. It was, I think it was a fishing boat. And then the two, I would, the fishermen that were like steering the boat. I mean, I don't even know the technical terms, like what type of situation would that be? Because I remember the people smuggler had um, promised us that it would be a beautiful ship or ferry and that it had a toilet, a chef um, and all kinds of things like that. And I remember days prior to actually leaving i was dreaming about like you know things that i had seen in movies where i am on a beautiful <laughs> i'm on the deck of some beautiful um cruising ships and a, and a ship and i'm going from uh oh my god i'm going from bali to some other place i remember dreaming about it and then when we arrived because the whole thing was uh, the operation was done at night time you go from uh, so you're transferred from the shore, like say in, in Bali, from the shore to um, the actual boat by little canoes or little boats. And then so family by family or two people by two people. And then uh, you are then transferred onto the boat. And when you arrive, you are absolutely shocked because you're like, what? We paid money. He promised us this. But you're so desperate as well as in shock, just like everyone else everyone else um you just think okay okay i just need to survive i need to sit down because it's like um you you just can't you can't, you've already gone through so much and you just think okay i'm one step closer so you just basically yep shut your mouth and get on with the journey and it's like you know the decision has been made now we're here and it's yep. like you just kind of your mentality has to change essentially yes and as such a young young child as well. Yes, and and I always expected because the thing is that's what I had heard from the adults around me that oh it's going to be oh it's going to be an amazing journey like because uh, that's what the people smuggler said he said it's going to be very comfortable there's uh, there's a chef on board and um, there is uh, there's an ama- there there are toilets like you know several toilets so yeah so if you have a family yeah it's very comfortable literally they promised us all those things not to my face. But that's what I had. And then there was literally a hole uh, that was dug up or I don't know, there was some type of arrangement, like a hole inside the boat where you could uh, sit on it and use it as a WC. But it was so difficult because um, the the people on the boat were all men. So you can't just sit down in front of the men. <laughs> so you had to, like, ask your father and your mom to please um, help you while your mom had to look after the other children. She was always throwing up and very sickly because she was pregnant. I think she was seven or eight months pregnant. So, and everyone, like a lot of people, because mind you, these people, the people who were on the boat, including our family, we had never been on boats or at the sea. And this was in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So the waves were crazy and like, it's a crazy ocean. (laughs) And, 
um, people were throwing up, like literally. If one, it was like an orchestra of people throwing up. I mean, I don't know if I ever threw up, but I remember my mom and other men were throwing up. And then sometimes we had to go down to the lower deck, and it was not a pleasant sight. <laughs> and, and yeah, and I remember that because I was 13. I mean, I'm not too young. I, mean, I wasn't like, I mean, I, I was young, but I wasn't small to not understand what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then when you finally arrived, uh, you were put into detention, is that right? Yes. Yes, um, that was crazy in itself as well. Um, that's the thing with um, being a refugee. You think one step, it, like the moment you're done with one step, the next step or the next, um, yeah, the next step would be easier, but it's not because it's a huge process and, um yeah, one step follows another step and the whole journey is just, it's not easy. It's never been easy. I don't think anyone can say that it is easy. So, um, we went, we, when we arrived, um, if I just may talk about this. So when we got nearer to Australia, the two Indonesian men that were guiding the boat or steering the boat or the fishermen, I guess, um, who handled the boat, um, were saying that they would take us to an island. But um, the men on the boat, um, so the other refugees, threatened them, literally threatened to kill them if they if they took us to the island that they were talking about. Now that I know they're talking about, like, they were probably talking about Christmas Island and those types of islands, but I don't know. All I could hear and remember in Arabic or Farsi or whatever language that people were speaking, they kept saying, they want to take us to an island. And they were, so then the refugees were, the refugees started threatening um, uh, the men um, that if they took us to an island, they would kill them. So then they decided to intersect with the Australian Navy. So then we were intercepted and um, made to stay in the middle of the ocean for, I think, one or two nights. And they gave us a thing. They said, if uh, you drown, uh, I forget the name of that uh, thing you press and like, you know, um, like a fire thing, like a not a firecracker, but there's a particular term for it. Like, let us know. Anyway, then the next day they picked us up. They burnt the boat uh, in front of our eyes. Then um, we went through a huge process where they clean us up and that kind of stuff, test us, vaccinate us with all kinds of stuff. Then they took us to Darwin. Then from Darwin, they took us to Perth to Port Hedland Detention Center, where we stayed um, as refugees in a detention center um, so the Port, Port Hedler Detention Center, which I think, I believe, no longer exists. And anyway, the people we encountered over there would say things like, oh, because we would ask them, how long have you been here? Oh, that's all we did. Every every second person we saw, we were like, hey, how long have you been here? Can you tell us um, when you expect to be out? And they were like, excuse me, don't even talk to me about this. I've been here for five years. Don't even think about it because you've come here. You've just come here. You're going to be here for the next five to six years, if not ten years. And we're like, oh, my God, we're – that's it. This is the end of our life. Why did we come? And we were all miserable, literally. And one day we were um, – uh, my siblings and I would attend, like, English classes. And one day we were learning Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, because I think it was around Christmas time. It was – I think it was end of November or beginning of December – my brother was nine and the other guys were all like 28, 27. And it was funny because like really, <laughs> it was like one of those movies uh, with um, Robin, Robin Williams. Um, 
or Robbie Williams, which is well, Robin Williams, yeah? yeah, where um you know adults attend with little kids, and we're like jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. And then uh, I remember somebody came in and said Shawani family, and they said you are out, and we were like excuse me. So we just couldn't believe it. This was literally one month later, Carnegie, and we were out. Uh, we, we still can't understand how this happened when that, yeah, it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to us. It's a, it's a great blessing. So we were in detention center for a month and we were, when we were, when we got out, we were helped by the church community, given, uh, community housing, I believe, for a month. Then my dad found a job. And we moved to um, like a central area in Perth. We stayed in Perth. Then five years later, we came to Melbourne. So, yeah. Wow. And after all that, you went on to study law. Yes. <laughs> what made you want to study law? I always, so my mom always wanted me to be a doctor, but I had to um, persuade her that I was always passionate about justice. Um and human rights, so um, which is obviously sort of clear, and she instilled those values um, in me, but she still wanted me to be a doctor, which is a typical thing for Middle Eastern parents. Um, yeah. But um, so I managed to persuade her that I really wanted to be a lawyer, and that was because I just wanted to uh, seek justice and um, pursue human rights. So you are a lawyer and over the years you've done so much community activism. Is there anything you're working on at the moment? Um, yes, apart from raising my toddler, yeah. um, I am uh, working on a podcast, which I um, hope to launch sometime soon. And with that podcast, I went to interview um um, so my podcast is called The Shiro's Journey. Uh, if I um, may, I already just self-advertised, but uh, The Shiro's Journey is going to be, um, is I'm, I'm going to be interviewing um, heroes or shiros um, that have uh, gone through amazing journeys where they went from, where they, slayed their dragons, um, uh, have overcome obstacles, they've never given up, and um, are now ultimately heroes because they um, they never gave up, basically. So I, I really I am I'm fascinated by the by the hero's journey, Joseph um, Campbell's Joseph Campbell's um, hero's journey, which is why I've named it the Shiro's journey but also because my last name is Sherwani, so the Shiro's journey. Wow, that's a really, really apt name, especially given your personal journey. Is is your podcast going to focus on women? Um, Mainly, yes. Yeah. And, I mean, just from your story as well, it's so clear that women and young girls have an added set of, you know, issues and problems and that's exactly right. Yes. And and that's not a perspective that's often discussed. So I really look forward to your podcast. Thank you very much. If I just may say, for instance, when I was on the boat, um, I had my um, period and no one knew that I was suffering. And it was my first time. And in our culture, we don't talk about period. And I was so embarrassed about bleeding. 
But um, how heroic was I as a child to keep it in because I thought something was wrong with me. And here I'm suffering on the boat. I don't have a pad. I can't. Uh, we don't have any food other than dried noodles. And I can't even go to the toilet. And I'm holding everything in for seven days and seven nights on the upper deck surrounded by men. The silent suffering of women, which is why I'm inspired to focus on issues that women go through. But also, um, from time to time, I'll probably interview men who are also uh, inspired by these types of um, journeys and stories. Especially given Australia's current government and political climate, it's really, really important for people to hear the stories of refugees and know what they go through and know why they live. So thank you so much for telling us your story and sharing with everyone. We really, really appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure, Carnegie. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Um, that was Donna Sherwani, who is an incredible lawyer, community activist, and um, a refugee from Kurdistan, um, telling us her, the story of her experience there and of her journey to Australia. If you want to follow her on Instagram, it's Donna.Sparrow. Um, and if you want to be, stay updated on her podcast, The Shira's Journey, um, it's just the, the Shira's Journey on Instagram. That was such an incredible story. Yeah, yeah she's she's an incredible person. Yeah, that was absolutely incredible. Um, all right, I reckon we're going to go to an announcement and we'll be right back to wrap things up. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002 and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday July the 5th to Friday July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bar. Thoughts within, visions I see, daring to dream, my destiny. Hi gardeners, get ready to turn on and tune in to the Gardening Show's annual Radiothon. It all takes place on Sunday the 27th of June from 7.30 to 10am when you can help keep your favourite gardening show growing. Listen in and call the station on 03-9419-8377 for great deals on gardening products, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions, green focus book titles and much more. Or make a tax-deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio. Dig deep for the 2021 3CR Gardening Show Radiothon, 7.30 to 10am on Sunday 27th of June. That should be a big one this Sunday for the Gardening uh, Radiothon. Um, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, just to recap uh, what was on the show, uh, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Cami Webgannon about West Papua um, and her new book, Morning Star Rising, The Politics of Decolonization in West Papua. 
And I spoke to Ian Rintoul of the Refugee Action Coalition talking about the asylum seekers who are currently on hunger strike in Melbourne to draw attention to their conditions. And I spoke with Donna Sherwani about her experience as a Kurdish refugee in Australia for Refugee Week. Yeah, and just on that note, it is Refugee Week and keep it locked to 3CRs. I'm sure there are going to be many stories, refugee stories and amplifying refugee voices. Um, up next, we've got Accent of Women. Um, we're still currently in Radiothon as well, so please keep those donations uh, coming in. You can go to 3cr.org. Dot au slash donate or phone us on 94198377. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.